You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Gary. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You're Gary Marcus, prominent cognitive scientist, professor emeritus at NYU, uh, Prominent voice in the AI debate. In fact, uh, this spring, when uh, right after the release of GPT-4, there were these big Senate hearings with only three witnesses. There you were, right next to Sam Altman, such as your prominence. Um, you, uh, you know, you have your issues with Sam Altman. I would say you're not exactly on the same page. You've got your issues with some other people, uh, including some, you know. Uh, seminal figures in the field of AI, especially in deep learning, neural networks, um, including Jan LeCun, Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, anyone who wants to follow that can follow you on Twitter, uh, where, where uh, these things surface. Um, or or I, my Substack for more detailed conversation than you will ever find on Twitter. Yeah, now is that, ju it's just your name, yeah, the name of your newsletter is your name, is that right? Uh, it's called Marcus on AI, and it's just okay. gary.marcus.substack.com. Okay. So I would like to start off with an old joke. There's uh, a paradox that some people claim lies within your worldview on AI that has long reminded me of an old joke. I was disappointed to learn. Somebody told me a couple of weeks ago, I'm not the first person this occurred to. And in fact, I think you've heard the joke in this context. So I'm just going to tell you the joke. You can tell us what seeming paradox it refers to and maybe explain why it's actually not a deep contradiction. Okay, maybe you can even guess the joke. Can you guess the joke? Uh... I don't know. I always think of streetlights, but that's maybe no, not. No, 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 no. It's, it's the old one where, where the guy says, I hate that restaurant. The food and is such so bad. Small portions. And the portions are so small. There's, that's a paradoxical view. And you're aware of the. Uh, I got paradox. it on two notes. Yeah. No, notes. yeah. You, you, you win. You're, you're today's winner uh, <laughs> on Name That Excellent. Joke. All right. Um, so, so do you want to spell out why you think it's a paradox here? And I'll reply. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's. Yeah, I mean, a paradox is just a seeming contradiction. I'm not saying there's necessarily a contradiction, but it's, you know, you on the one hand uh, say that the, you know, these large language models are very dangerous, they need to be regulated and so on. And on the other hand, you seem to say they suck, they don't work well. And the seeming contradiction is, look, if they don't work well, they're probably not going to get adopted very widely. And uh, so if they, you know, uh, the, the, the consequences of their bad performance will presumably be limited. Most, most people who are very worried and want them regulated feel that way because they think they're very powerful. You think they're not powerful and yet dangerous. That's the paradox. Well, the best version I heard of it is Gary Marcus used to think that AI was stupid and now he thinks it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that encapsulates the, the kind of perspective there. <laughs> so... The truth is, I still think that they're stupid, but I think that stupid things can be dangerous. Um, I don't think they're as dangerous as some people think. So some people think that large language models, maybe GPT-5, might um, actually threaten humanity, that might actually extinguish us. So people talk about existential risk as if like literally we might all die as a result of a large language model or possibly a future AI. Future AI is more complicated. Large language models, I'd say, no, they're not going to kill us all. You know, we're a very resilient species. Um, you know, we're distributed around the globe. We're genetically diverse. It would really take a lot of work to kill us all. If you look at COVID, which was presumably not deliberate, even if it was a lab leak, um, you know, that killed, I guess, one-tenth of a percent of, of humanity. There's nothing like 100%. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that there's a real extinction risk. But can large language models be used by bad actors to do dangerous things? Absolutely. So one of the ways they're stupid is they don't understand reality. They can't fact check. For example, um, one of these systems said that I drew inspiration from my pet chicken, Henrietta. I don't have a pet chicken. I don't have a pet chicken named Henrietta. That's what we call a hallucination or a confabulation. It just made it up. And a smart, intelligent agent like you, for example, if you see something that seems peculiar, can go and fact check it. You can be like, well, I don't see it in Wikipedia. I'm not seeing it in the Times, whatever else my favorite sources are. Maybe it's just not true. Maybe I'll hedge that and I'll say, could be Gary has a pet chicken, Henrietta, but I don't see any evidence for it. 
And the system said I had pet chicken Henrietta probably because there's an illustrator named Gary who was an author on a book about a Henrietta chicken. And so we just completely confabulated the statistics. So from that actor's perspective, what these systems do well is they mimic humans. So they can copy the kinds of patterns we use in language, patterns in drawings, but they can't fact check. They don't know how to fact check. And so if you are a bad actor and you want to influence politics, you can use these tools, deep fakes, um, chatbots, et cetera, to make very high quality misinformation and some other things I'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. And for example, disrupt the political process. So I think one of the most dangerous outcomes that we might get from large language models is that they could undermine democracy. And that could be a really serious thing if democracy is undermined. I would really, really rather not see that. You don't need an intelligent agent to do that. You just need a good mimic. Right. But um, it seems to me there are two separate issues here, and there's a little bit of a paradox even here. If you're worried about bad actors, it seems to me you're mainly worried about them actually working well doing what the bad actors want them to do. The misinformation won't yeah, be a mistake bad actors, on the AI's part when it's in act- the hands of a bad actor, right? So the bad actors don't need the AI to be that smart. So they don't need an AI, for example, that's grounded in reality. So the scientist, there's actually an asymmetry. It's a really interesting asymmetry. So some of the positive uses for AI would require the AI that's reliable, that is grounded in fact, etc. So <laughs> scientific discovery, for example. Um, but Bad actors don't need such high quality tools. So th- think about spam for a second. You know, most spam doesn't work, but it's still mm-hmm. in the interest of the spammers to use it. You know, 99.99% or something like that of spam gets disregarded. But you only need a little bit. And in fact, these tools are being used for scams and being used more and more. Um, so they don't have to be that sophisticated a tool as long as they can um, change the economics. So for example, they can reduce the price of misinformation where they can automate phishing um, things that steal people's credentials and so forth. So you don't have to be like artificial general intelligence or, you know, the Star Trek computer level or anything like that to be good tools and bad actors. I mean, guns aren't smart, but they're still useful uh, for bad well, actors. Right. But the qualitatively new threat, it seems to me, posed in this specific context is that a bad actor can have a bot that is convincing as a conversationalist. And this was harder to do five, 10 years ago, a lot harder to do. There's, there's been but, progress there on that. Um, right. The algorithm hasn't really changed, or the amount of data has changed. And it turns out the best way to, at least that we know right now, to mimic a person is just to have a lot of text that other people have said. So um, in the same way that autocomplete can finish a sentence, this really is a form of autocomplete based on a really, really massive library of data. And so it does a good job of capturing the flavor of that data. And so it sounds like it's human. It still doesn't mean it understands things. So if you read my Substack, I give zillions of examples where these systems don't understand the most basic thing. Like someone today gave an example, they asked a generative AI system to draw a person, draw a left-handed person drawing. And like mm-hmm. 95% of the time, it will draw a right-handed person drawing because it confuses what is common with what is that being asked for. And then I gave many other examples of misread clocks and all these kinds of things. Um, the system does not understand the text. It draws a picture that is a statistically probable thing rather than an accurate thing. So it's really not that smart, but if you want it to draw a right-handed person, it'll work for you because it has a lot of right-handed people in the okay. database. Okay, let's talk about this issue of understanding, because uh, speaking of Substacks, by the time this is posted, uh, this podcast, I will have posted something on my uh, Substack, Non-Zero, about John Searle's famous uh, Chinese room thought experiment, which is Mm -hmm. the most famous argument that AIs don't really understand, can't really understand. And I argue that if you look at how large language models work, they undermine the foundations of his argument. That doesn't mean there's not another good argument that they don't understand things. But his argument, I contend, is dead, dead, dead. And that's uh, on my non-zero newsletter. Before we get what's into What's your, your argument? So my, my argument has always been that the thought experiment is just not that plausible. That, like, it's, it's a fine thing to talk about. But the empirical reality is you have things exactly like we have right now. And that they make all these crazy errors. And in his premise, you know, they wouldn't be making these errors because they'd be acting just like a human. And they don't. Uh, okay, well, there's two kind of parts of my argument. We should say maybe as background that there have long been two kind of competing approaches to AI. They may wind up being complementary, but 
but they're two separate schools of thought. Um, the one you've been associated with is kind of symbol manipulation. You know, it's kind of like algebra. You have symbols that stand for things in the real world or concepts. Then you have rules for manipulating the symbols, and then more symbols come out at the other end. Let That's me just like interject speed. something yeah. important there. Mm -hmm. um, my view has always been that that approach, the symbol approach, is not sufficient on its own, and that the neural network approach that's popular right now is not sufficient on its own. And that what we really need to do is to combine the two. And I don't think there's been enough work um, to do that. So I am often associated with the symbolic side of things because I have defended the value in that side, but I have never said that I think that that's sufficient. I don't think that it is. Okay. Um, so anyway, on the, uh, my, my critique of Searle, it, it begins with, talking about what we mean by understanding, what would it mean for you to say that an AI does understand? What would have to be the case? So, <clears throat> mainly, for example, on the things that it does, it should do them in general ways and not what I like to call pointillistic ways. So, pointillistic means, like, there's a whole bunch of examples. Sometimes it gets it right. Sometimes it gets it wrong. It really depends on exactly what's in the training set. So, for example, you see this in arithmetic. Like, if you give it a bunch of three-digit arithmetic pro problems, three three digits times three digits, it'll get some of them right, some of them wrong. You get out to five digits, it's getting fewer of them right because there are mm -hmm. fewer stored examples that, that cover the territory. And so it's never systematically doing something like multiplication correctly. Whereas a human who's competent, who learns how to carry digits and stuff like that, can do it on a, a broader range of things. So we, we can learn something abstractly. If you know the philosophical um, terminology, there's a wonderful distinction between intention and extension, mm -hmm. where intention is basically the core meaning of something, and extension is knowing specific examples of it. And large language models and all their predecessors, um, not necessarily any neural network we might invent, but the ones that we have worked with really just get the extensional part. They get specific examples, and they can't do it comprehensively. So, you know, the, the example of draw a person who, who is drawing, who is left-handed, they, they get stuck on that because they have a lot of extensional examples of right-handed people drawing. They don't really understand what okay. it is to be. Okay, but uh, you know, most people, th there are definitely people who can't do even two-digit multiplication, but they you know, do but understand. The they can, they, they, right, so let me just be clear. You know, large language models are mainly about language, like taking in language and responding in ways that seem appropriate. So what, what, let's just confine it to that. Conversationally, what would have to be true of a model that does, let's take an LLM when it's working well. And I've seen examples where it works just amazingly well. Uh, and, and maybe I'll share one or two to drive the point home. But, but for now, let's just say when they're working well, and you, you say things to them, you have a whole conversation, they seem to respond appropriately, which does happen. What would you have to know about what's going on inside the model to say, yes, that's understanding? What would be the case? Well, that was an interesting fast one you just slipped in there about the what, what's going on inside. So part of the problem is, in mm -hmm. fact, that we can only look at their external behavior. So um, <clears throat> from the perspective of the external behavior, I find them to be highly inconsistent. You don't know from one minute to the next, whether they're going to work. They're just okay, not- Okay, but my reliable. thought experiment, I, you, you recently chastised it, someone on Twitter for not knowing what a thought experiment is. I did. The thought experiment, you're allowed to define the terms. We're talking about where it's working well, seems to be working well. What, what would have to be the case for you to say, okay, that yeah, is- I, I am gonna push on the premise of your, your thought experiment, um, maybe by way of analogy. So imagine that I had a system that flipped coins and answered yes or no questions and it got them right some of the time, but not all of the time. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to say, well, what is going on when it's working well? And I would say, well, that's absurd. Um, when it gets it right, it's a coincidence. Now, it's a little bit more complicated in the case of the large language model, but I would say that it's absurd to choose post hoc the questions on which it, it gets it right. Um, those were random tosses of the coin. What I would say with respect to large language models is the cases they get it right are because the circumstances are close enough to the stored circumstances that it gets it right, but you have it interdigitated always with the pet ch chicken Henrietta kind of stuff where it's getting it wrong. What it is always doing is a fundamentally different computation than what a person is doing. What you are doing is you're relating a set of facts that you have a mental model of, a world model of, imperfect possibly, but you mm -hmm. are relating the, that imperfect world model to a semantics, and you're operating over that in an environment with other people. 
And what it's doing is has a model of what people have said in some circumstance. And that's a different thing. It's a statistical well, model. But, but just not, another sentence or two. Um, and <clears throat> that statistical model of what people say sometimes lines up and sometimes doesn't with the truth of the matter or whatever the thing is that, that we're talking about. And so it becomes an approximation. It works some of the time, doesn't work other times, but it's doing the same thing whether it works or not. It's a fact about the world and how well that model lines up for whether or not it's correct on any occasion. It's not doing a different kind of processing when it's right or when it's wrong. Okay, so you just said it doesn't have semantics. This, this brings us to Searle's argument. What he said, one of the kind of two important things he says in the paper is the AI has syntax, but not semantics. And yeah. there are there's a, there's there are important senses in which I think the LLMs have semantics. For one thing, they are let me let me they are they are you know the, the vectors amount to among other things mapping words in a kind of semantic space. So in this multi-dimensional space, shoe is closer to boot than either is to tree or bush. And 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 this is uh and I think without this you couldn't get the kind of performance. Uh, that you get from them, but it's right, not right quite away, right. Searle's argument is in trouble. Once you once you even point to that, there's something else that yeah, I argue. I, you have I to can't say accept to bury his argument, but I, I can't yeah. accept that premise. And it's, it's important to walk through why I don't, because superficially it looks like what you're saying is right. So you can you can <clears throat> draw, for example, I'll use an older technique, multi-dimensional scaling, um, just on vectors over where words have been in mm -hmm. a sentence. Um, you can do these things, and you get maps. And those maps correlate-ish with the world. So, for example, there was an old technique um, called latent semantic analysis. It's simpler in some ways than what we're using now. Um, Tom Landauer made it famous in, I guess, the 90s. And he, he showed that you could get a map out of it. And the map was good, but not great. So, like, it would have New York and Washington, D.C. closer together than Los Angeles and Seattle, just by word proximity. But it would also make mistakes, too. Like, we'd have New York and Los Angeles too close together because too many people go back and forth between the two. So the dimensions that you think of, they are geographic, north, south, east, west, um, have some correlation with the representations of the system. But they're not the same thing, and the, the systems ones are not a, actually a good proxy for the world. They're kind of like a rough approximation that happen because there is some statistical thing in the world it means, for example, New York and D.C. get talked a lot about. People take trains back and forth. They can mm -hmm. drive back and forth. Um, some of the same people, you know, go, go back and forth. It doesn't doesn't mean that those things um, are representing the system as actual geography. It's the same thing over and over with these systems, which is you get some leverage out of the world being correlated with the language that we use. Right. But you never get enough, which is why you always get these mistakes. Right. But. The, it's it's true that it begins with statistics. I mean, the, the way they train the machine is, uh, well, uh, you know. It, well, this it, is why it, I went to the arithmetic example first. You didn't like the arithmetic example, but the well, reason no. that I, I went there is because <clears throat> in arithmetic, we can actually control the input. We can do careful experiments, and we can ask how much of this is driven by similarity, and to right. what extent does it actually get the abstract function here of multiplication? People have done the empirical studies, Several people have in different contexts. And mm -hmm. it turns out when you get to a large enough multiplication problem <clears throat> that similarity matters a lot and there's never any genuine abstraction. So when you can do the most carefully controlled experiments, it's just obvious that there's no genuine abstraction. Well, you say there's no genuine abstraction, but you also said we don't know what's going on inside these models. So I don't know how you could be so sure there isn't. And let me just, let me just. Empirically I, I there, have, let me, you, let you me can look give you at an example. Data. Let me give you an example where I think you, it's very hard to explain it without assuming that in the course of learning how to respond appropriately to language, which is, of course, a massive process, including tons of text and tons of neurons, that in the course of doing that, it has to build a, a model that has some correspondence, uh, certainly to the se relative semantic relationships of the words. And and I would say even beyond that, uh, Bill's representation wrong. of concepts. Well, <clears throat> first of all, are you are you uh, did you did you read this uh, paper by I think Dan Hendricks and Andy Zauer Z O U about representation engineering? Well, they say, 
Well, you should read it. They say they have, uh, I mean, some, you know, a lot of, a bunch of other people are also authors and they're all from these reputable places. And they say that, that they are now starting to be able to, as I understand it, kind of locate, in a sense, the representation of concepts and even manipulate those representations such that, let me give you an example that's maybe a little extreme and not exactly what they have in mind, but, but you can go in, in principle, and engineer it so that it no longer thinks a dog is something that barks, it thinks of it as something that meows. That's not the exact example, but, but there's that. Let, let me just do one more thing. I want to give you the example that first impressed me about LLMs and convince me that that's just kind of like fancy autocomplete, okay? And people can read the whole transcript of my conversation with GPT-4 uh, on my newsletter. I think the title is Chat GPT-4 Has Cognitive Empathy. By cognitive empathy, I don't mean any subjective state. I mean the ability to make plausible conjectures about people's states of mind, so-called theory of mind. So here's what I said. I said, uh, suppose there is a student in a class and the teacher asks questions, student raises the hand. The teacher uh, says, well, I guess I've heard worse answers, but I can't remember when. So first I said, how do you think uh, that student is feeling? And of course, chat, you know, GPT-4 does a lot of throat clearing, says, well, different people are different, blah, 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 but here are the possibilities. The first one was the student is disheartened and uh, embarrassed. And yeah, I, I, that was good. They were all kind of plausible in descending order of probability, I thought. And, I, and so I said, okay, so let's assume you're right. And it's the kid is disheartened and embarrassed. How do you think the other students are feeling? And and they went, listed the, the, the pro, them in order of, I would say, probability. You know, they feel sorry for the kid, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, this is the, 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 the interesting part. I said, okay, now suppose in the class there is a guy who is romantically attracted to the girlfriend of the guy who answered the question incorrectly. How is that student feeling? And again, said, well, different people are different, but here you go. And the first thing it said was schadenfreude taking, you know, pleasure in the suffering of others, explained why, you know, because maybe this will lower the other student in, in the esteem of the girlfriend, and that will be an opportunity for this guy. Now, obviously, there was not in the training data some kind of word-for-word -word, uh, version of this. I I, I'd be surprised if there was even, broadly speaking, this, uh, you know, the same kind of thing. But in any event, I just I've let you go for a while, can... but I would okay. like to come back before there's too many mm -hmm. assumptions mm -hmm. on the table that I just really can't um, abide by. Um, so one, one is, that's right, probably in the training set is not something verbatim. The, the one thing these systems do the best is a kind of paraphrasing through a technique called embedding. So it doesn't have to be there verbatim, but even there, there's an asterisk, which is they do actually remember things verbatim. Um, Probably your specific case was not, but they do remember a lot of stuff verbatim. I and mean, we might want to talk about that for other reasons having to do with things like copyright infringement and so forth. But so they remember some stuff verbatim. They're very good at this kind of paraphrasing. But then I think that the ordinary human mind, or maybe even the extraordinary human mind, cannot really apprehend what it's like to be trained on the entire internet. Um, and so I can't tell you how many times I have seen somebody post on the internet, it's amazing that the, you know, such and such machine did, you know, this chatbot did this thing. And then somebody else looks up five minutes later and says, well, actually that example was on the internet or it was, you know, there within two words or something like okay, that. Okay, so but we agree the, that wasn't the case here, right? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. I gave you a long time, you're gonna give me some. Um, in the case of theory of mind, which was what you're talking about, it turns out empirically that the chatbots are better at the cases that are in 50,000 textbooks, like the one where the little boy plays a trick on, or somebody plays a little trick um, while the parent is out of the room and that, <coughs> that kind of stuff. And when people have done systematic studies, they just don't do that well. Or to take another example, is just But chess. this is an example of something that wasn't in a textbook. And, it, and well, it you don't know that. You, you know it's not in a textbook, but you don't know because the, the data set is proprietary. This is a whole separate problem from a scientific methodology perspective. Because the data set is proprietary, we can't look. But in every domain where people have tried in some way to get at this question, there's always an effect for moving away from the most similar items 
to the less similar items. This is called um, dis- uh, generalizing outside the distribution. I've been harping on this for 30 years. Now, Yashua Bengio is harping on it too. It is a known fact about these systems. They do better in the distribution of data than not. In the case of a theory of mind, Yage and Toy has shown examples that are outside the distribution that are problematic. In the case of Go, um, Stuart Russell showed that if you played Go in a different way, then AlphaGo had problems. It's a different technique there, but it's still a um, reflection of the same problem. In the mathematics stuff, it's a reflection of the same problem. You cannot, or sorry, in law is another case where they said, oh, wow, it passed the law exams, but then people did studies in different ways and it started to fall apart. It's always in every domain that I know of been the case that if you come close to what's in the database, that you do better. If you go further, you do less well. And at the same time, the, the creators of these systems don't want us to do those studies. They don't want to allow us to look at what is in the training set. So we have to do it in an oblique way, but when the scientific community does it in this oblique way, it's invariably the case that there is an effect of how close you are to the distribution. The further away you are, the more problems these systems have. Okay, let me uh, just make one quick observation uh, and then um, say something broader. I mean, the observation is you've kind of, you know, you kind of dismiss this as involving paraphrasing, well, the only reason people can paraphrase is because they understand the meaning of things. And they understand that one word is closer to another word than it is to another word. And again, this is going on inside the machines, this kind of mapping. And that is that is why John Searle's, that is one reason John Searle's argument doesn't well, apply. You, you assume your conclusion there. So, so the argument that you want to make is that there is semantics there. But the premise was that there's semantics there. And I don't accept your premise. I mean, I, I think what is in there is prediction from one sequence of words to the next. Here's, here's another way to well, think sure. about it. Sure, but wait, but wait, just to be clear, do you deny that there is, that the vector representation of the words amounts to, among other things, a mapping of them in highly multidimensional, what could be called semantic space? It's not only semantic, the dimensions it's, can it's represent when you call syntax it semantic and so on, space. But... It's when you call semantic space that I really want to hold the line. Why? So, so it's a space about representation of how words have been used relative to one another. But semantics right. for me, as someone who was trained in part in linguistics, is about a representation between words and some representation of external reality. Um, right. So for me, or let, here, I'll give an example. So I have a cognitive model of where you are sitting just by looking at your room. So I see bookshelves, I see lots of books there. Um, I see you, you have a shirt on. Um, you don't have a sweater on, it's not raining. So I'm building up these representations of what's going on in the world, and I'm trying to relate sentences to what I know about also what you've written, the conversation that we've had, that's also part of my cognitive model. I'm trying to figure out how to clarify things and so forth. These systems aren't doing that. They don't have a representation of the outside world, which is why you get these crazy examples. Like I just, I don't know if I can um, even get the the video. Whoops, that's not gonna work. Um, I'll just read it. These crazy examples, like you say, um, you know, draw a room with no elephants in it, and they draw an yeah. elephant in it because they don't have a representation of what it means to be a room or an elephant or hidden. If, if I say that where the elephant is hidden, etc. And so you have all of these cases where it breaks down. And the mm-hmm. only explanation for why it breaks down has to do with statistics, words, and proximity, and so forth, rather than understanding those underlying concepts. All right. I, I, I agree. I mean, there's no one denies that there are uh, parts of kind of elementary logic that LLMs don't do well, right? They and, certainly don't do and, negation and, well, as an example you, that anybody you, should you, you gave an example of, um, you know, when you, although this involves kind of the interface between the LLM and the visually generative AI, so I, I don't really know about that, but the example where you say, uh, draw a picture of somebody holding a pen in their left hand, they don't get it. Um, you know, on the other hand, I'd say there are people who, who if, you, if you don't tell anybody as they grow up what a left hand and a right hand is, they won't know that, but they'll still be able to um, uh, understand a lot of stuff. Now, the point you make a, about representation, this gets to the other part of Searle's argument where he says, uh, so first he says it has to be semantics. Again, I, I, would, I would argue strongly that the key to these models, uh, and in my experience, the performance is pretty consistently amazing. I'm aware of the hallucination problems, the lapses in logic, but for my purposes, 
this is just a revolution compared to what was available um, several can, days can ago. Can we pause on that for a second, yeah. the amazing part? Because um, I think it's important. I think it is amazing <laughs> in a certain technical sense. Like, I, I think that, you know, five years ago, we would not have expected this level of performance. However, that doesn't mean that it's intelligent, that it has semantics, etc. So it turns out that with this amount of data, you can do these impressive things. That doesn't also mean that it's reliable, that it's safe, um, that you can count on its answers, that it's not making stuff up. So, you know, something can exceed your expectations, but still not actually have a cognitively rich life or, or be something that you can use as a reliable tool. And some of it, you know, depends on what your use case is. So it turns out if you want to make, um, you know, fake blogs for the purposes of advertising, it doesn't need to be that accurate. And so you can actually use it for that. Then it turns out there are other cases like programming. Everybody's getting excited, but it's, you know, there's some studies showing the quality of code is going down and maybe the people are prematurely excited. And then there are other domains where people have studied things pretty systematically and they just, you can't really rely on them. And they, you know, they make stuff up about people, they defame them, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's a distinction between how cool do I think this thing is mm -hmm. or even how surprised am I that this approach yields this result and does it have a genuine semantic such that it can reliably answer a question? Like, those are different. Well, but there's a third category. Uh, I mean, if by reliable, you mean with 100% accuracy, then, okay, you can use that Even as your in definition. Many domains but what I 90. would say is, uh, I, I mean, it gets to the question of what understanding is. So I assume you and I would agree. Here's one, here's one other uh, domain that's really interesting mm -hmm. to think about, is driverless cars, right? <clears throat> so... Driverless cars probably are like 99% accurate, mm -hmm. um, which makes them useless. So there's been $100 billion that's been invested in them, but all we have are demos. You can ride one in San Francisco. You can ride one in Arizona. If you live in a place with snow, you can't ride one at all, as far as I know. Um, and it's the same issue, actually, which is they don't have a rich enough representation of the world, so they wind up with these outlier cases where something's outside the distribution, like someone um, pressed summon um, on a, their phone to get their Tesla to come across a parking lot, they were at an airplane trade show and the Tesla ran directly into a jet, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say it doesn't really understand the world around it. By the it. way, that's one of my favorite videos on the internet. It's pretty amazing, guy, right? Watching the, that guy like summon his Tesla to impress somebody and then it runs into the, his little private jet. It's great. Three and a half million dollar jet, yeah, right? Yeah. And then the jet spins around after the car collides with it. <laughs> Um, it's an amazing video, but it's also, I mean, it's really a clarion call to, to recognize that even if you train on a lot of data, you still have something outside the data where humans could handle it, right? So I've never been on an airplane runway in the driver's seat of a car, but I wouldn't have run into the jet because I would have been able to reason that thing is expensive. It might explode, et cetera. Let me go around it. And like, there was lots of space. It could have easily gone around it, but it just didn't recognize it at all. It didn't have enough general understanding of how the world works to translate those pixels that weren't in its data set into any course of action whatsoever. And it's, it's another domain where you can get things mostly right, but in that case, mostly right's not good enough. It's high stakes. People can die, jets can get you know ruined or whatever. Um, and so even though you can do this wonderful statistical approximation to get a wonderful demo and get $100 billion worth of funding, it doesn't mean that it actually works in the real world. It doesn't mean that it actually understands what driving is. It's exactly the same set of issues. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me on this issue you brought up of, 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 you know, meaning having to involve representing something in the real world, I, th I think that's kind of the point you made. At any rate, Searle kind of makes that point. He, in his paper, no. he says it has to have semantics uh, not not just syntax. I would say these LLMs have this uh, map relative uh, mapping of words in semantic space. You wouldn't, but whatever. Uh, then then he uses the word intent. It has to have intentionality. Now, you might read that and think he means it has to be sentient. It has, but but no, intentionality in philosophy, it's a it's a technical term. Um, you you've alluded to it. This is maybe not exactly the sense in which you were using the term, but intentionality means like being about something referring to something in the real yeah. world. And what I would say is now that you have multimodal AI and you can point a smartphone's camera at an apple and say, what is this? And it says, that's an apple. It's a fruit. Here's some desserts you can make. Then that is intentionality. Now, I want, I want to head off one reply to that is a lot of people, including philosophers, 
would associate intentionality with a state of mind, e even in this technical sense. I mean, in other words, they would say, well, okay, a word on a piece of paper is about the corresponding thing in the real world, but that's only by virtue of the fact that uh, people think about it and so on. So there are different views on what intentionality means, but what I would say is, in general, if if you're going to make sentient, subjective experience a prerequisite for granting that something understands things, which, by the way, Searle does not do in his original paper, although he later talked as if he had, but he does not do that. If you want to do that, then look, all bets are off. We don't know if LLMs are sentient. If that's your definition of understanding, I'm agnostic. So I think the best we can do is say, is the kind of physical information processing system uh, doing things broadly like what is going on physically in the brain when we have the feeling of understanding things? And there, I would say, uh, you can talk about things like concepts. And again, I would direct people to this paper where they say they're starting to identify the representation of con concepts. You can talk about uh, a relative semantic mapping. And of course, there are people who think that actually the human brain depends very much on that kind of relative uh, semantic mapping. Um, and you can talk about Wait, intentionality, me... about, you know, referring to something in the real world, but uh, we have to be talking about the physical information flow that connects the two. And multimodal but... AI has that. So I disagree with the last point, but let me put something else on the table and then I'll try to work my way back to it. So um, intentionality in the sense of being about something in the world is a complicated philosophical concept. Mm -hmm. But I think that you could argue that GPS systems actually meet that standard, that it's not a problem with AI, it's a problem with a particular form of AI. So GPS systems, <laughs> navigation systems, um, their, their representations have some connection to things in the world. They allow you to drive. They allow you to drive reliably. You know, there have been a few errors here or there, but basically those systems work. They help you to navigate the world. They don't have the kind of unreliability that has been a hallmark of the neural network approach. Um, they basically do actually work, and I would be willing to ascribe them as semantics when they plan a route from place A to B going through C and D. There is some referent in the world there's a law-like representation of that. Yes, you could confuse them. We could talk about misrepresentations, in this literature, but that. But the first approximation, those systems actually are representing something about the world. I don't see that in in the way that neural networks of today work, even the multimodal ones. So um, you get, for example, the same kinds of hallucinations and bizarre errors. And I've been documenting these pretty regularly in my Substack. So one that I had today was somebody asked the system to read the time on a couple of clocks, I'm trying to think if I'm getting this exactly backwards, and it said 1010 even though it was 645. Or maybe somebody said make it say 645 and it, it did clocks with 1010. I forget which direction it was going. And the point is that it was relying on the frequency of 1010, which turns out to be the most common time for analog watches because it looks pretty. So when mm -hmm. you have an advertisement of an analog watch, people do 1010 because of the symmetry. Um, and so the thing doesn't really understand the relationship. It doesn't know how to tell time, I guess would be a simpler way to say it. Um, it doesn't understand the semantics of time telling. It understands the proximity of these words in these conversations that people will give certain times that, that watches are related to that, it's an, or pixel space that's in the watch part of pixel space would be more accurate way to say it. And so it's able to kind of predict the abstract structure, or that's not the right way to say it. It's able to predict the kind of convention of, of which of these words come when, but it doesn't actually read time. So even though it's now grounded, to use another term that comes up in this philosophical discourse a lot, even though it's now grounded in a lot of pictures, it's still actually clueless about how to read time. Mm -hmm. um, it, that's very different from the GPS navigation system, which doesn't just make up stuff arbitrarily. It's very rare you know, you can have weird things like there's a construction site or something like that, but it's very rare for a GPS system to just fabricate something wholesale. Whereas large language models every day make fabrications, lots of them. And that includes the multimodal system. So I don't think they're getting the right grounding and I will explain why I think they're not getting the right grounding. It's still grounding out in a bunch of arbitrary sets of pixels and arbitrary sets of words and not there is no cognitive model in there even of what a watch is it just does not really understand what a watch is for it's not doing it in a human context it's doing it in a very different way 
which is correlational. And it turns out empirically that that's not good enough. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, if it's screwing up on the watch thing, it must not have a very good representation. But again, on the many things it does well, like say that's an apple, if we don't know exactly what's going on inside, you can't rule Ooh. out the possibility that there is a, a, a representation, a conceptual representation so, in some respects like the one inside a human brain. Uh, whoa, the last part I am not going to grant you. So so we, we, we could argue that there is a representation. I don't mean physically. Grant I don't mean the physical setup. I mean so at a higher level of abstraction uh, than that. But go ahead. It doesn't make it like a human brain. So so the difference between the concepts in, if you want to call them that at all, in these systems and the ones in the human brain is the ones in human brain typically have something about function attached to them. And the ones in these systems are really about clusters of pixels and um, gradients of color and stuff like that, which we have some of, but we always have top-down knowledge about how the world works and these systems don't really. And that, that always limits what they can do with those concepts. Yeah, I certainly agree that there are things LLMs don't understand about how the world works. I don't know enough to, I mean, they seem to be getting better and better. I don't know how, if at all, they will ever- Can, can I pause on that one for a second? Yeah. The getting yeah. better. I hear this every day, but mm -hmm. I also hear every day people saying, damn, we haven't had a new model since GPT-4. It's almost been a year. And so, like, there, there was an enormous jump between GPT-3 and 3.5. It was a pretty big jump between three and a half and four. Mm -hmm. and now I actually think that we're maybe plateauing. I think that that um, GPT Turbo four and a half is not a whole lot better than four, and is mm -hmm. probably this is speculation a failed attempt at five. I think they wanted to call it five, and they realized it's not enough better, so they called it four and a half. I think um, or Turbo or whatever they call it. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's because they didn't really come in with goods. And then it's super interesting. Google had unlimited resources, basically. I mean, they're Google. Um, and I think they put in about a billion dollars, did not choose to put in $25 billion, and wound up with something that's basically about as good as GPT-4. There was an article in Information Today um, where Stephanie Palazzolo asked around a, a bunch of um, people in industry, and they said, yeah, it's kind of like GPT-4. It's not a lot better. It's not a lot worse. It does a couple things better, a couple things worse. And so I actually think it is possible. I, I can't assert this with certainty. But I think it is possible that we're actually close to as far as we can go with these techniques. And that most of the remaining errors come because these systems either don't know how to fact check or because they're dealing with things that are outside the training space. And that adding more data, although that helped a lot before, is reaching a point of diminishing returns. And they may not, in fact, get a whole lot better from here until there is some kind of paradigm shift. Yeah, uh, that may be uh, that scale alone won't do it. Uh, there are people fooling around with, I don't know, about paradigm shifts, but new things like this so-called space-based whatever, uh, or state-based, or state-based, state uh, you know, something or other. That, so there's a lot of work. I mean, we'll see. I, but, but I'd say a couple of things. Um, and, and here I want to, there's a lot you and I agree on, which is like, Concern. Your listeners um, wouldn't know that, but well, I I, uh, I suspect it's actually but, but, true, but I don't think we've documented. Well, I it. think we're concerned yeah. about the implications of like you came out for for a pause, right? Like, and my view is, um, well, let me let me put it this way: I, I would say there's kinds of you could divide risks into three kinds. One is the kind you talk about; the thing just screws up. It's like somebody relies on it for medical diagnosis, get the wrong diagnosis, they die, whatever. Uh, misinformation that it's not supposed to generate, somebody relies on it, whatever. Uh, somebody decides to put it in charge of nuclear weapons, which I don't recommend, uh, and so on. Um, but, uh, but then there's two other categories. There's the bad actors category. And I would say it already manifestly works well enough for us to wor worry about that in certain domains. And I think you probably agree. Um, yep. And then there's the sheer, uh, you know, so-called, uh, I guess you could say social turbulence resulting from what you could call legitimate uses. Like it's legitimate for employers to use it to increase productivity and fire some people. On the other hand, if that happens at too fast a rate, even if the people can find other jobs, and some people think that this time around that won't be so easy, but even if they do, uh, beyond a certain level, just the sheer turbulence from people having to find jobs is a problem. Or another case, like it's designed to be a companion for teens or your child. It does a good job. They like it. 
It gives them empathy, as it's supposed to be, do. But it turns out that uh, that has these, uh, you know, a whole generation doing this has these bad side effects. I mean, especially when you when you think about the fact as we've seen with social media, right? Exactly. Commercial entities are going to optimize for engagement. And that is pretty scary. So I'm I am, you know, if I could do one thing, it would just be to slow things down. So when I hear about Sam Altman going around the world trying to to gather billions of dollars so that we can get all these chips, because what would happen if AI slowed, you know, progress slowed down? I'm like, no, that's a feature, not a bug. Okay, if it slows down, that's great. So I, I think, you know, we do agree on a lot. And what I would say is is in that I would just try to make the argument to you that in those other two realms, like social turbulence through legitimate use and kind of bad actors, it's already clear it's going to get extremely um, challenging. And in a way, this well, speaks Casey to Newton the- made a, an, an argument the other day that the net value of generative AI has been negative so far because things like deepfakes um, ha- have caused a lot of problems already, cybercrime, deepfake porn, et cetera, et cetera, um, misinformation in, in elections, and that maybe the, the net benefit is, is negative for generative AI so far. I think that's a tough one to call, and in a way, I think it's too early to call it, but I think he was right to raise it. I've tried to raise it myself occasionally. Um, we can't take for granted that this particular technology will be net positive. So co- going back to another thing, um, the pause letter, which I signed, though I didn't write, what I liked about it was it didn't actually cause for pause on all research. It caused for pause on a particular kind of AI that we know is unstable and said, let's spend more money investing in research on AI that might be safer. And I think that that's still a good idea. I wouldn't just stop well, AI yeah. cold, but well, I would say, hey, before we deploy this stuff to hundreds of millions of people, let's try to understand the consequences. Can we do it better, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, you want to hear a visionary idea? It's like, mm-hmm. put a big tax on advanced microchips and you and funnel some of that money in, and it, and, and it would presumably have the effect of slowing things down a little, which I would say is good in itself, of course, ultimately, it would have to be a global tax. But actually, we, we recently made progress on some kind of global agreement on uh, minimum corporate tax or something. It's not impossible. Uh, anyway, the... Um, I think so, we should think a lot about incentives and the incentive structure of society so that, you know, we can foster innovation and technology. We want to do that. But so that the population isn't screwed. Like, I think that's a completely reasonable thing to try to do. Yeah, and I'm even I'm not so big on the innovation part. I mean, another look, innovation is going to happen. Technological progress is unstoppable. It's just that there's such a thing as it moving too fast and not giving well, not society well time to adapt. Like, you know, it's too fast relative to our ability to, to make sure that it doesn't do bad things to the structure of society. Right. And this is what happened with social media: is it moved faster than we were able to regulate it, and there have been a lot of negative consequences, polarization in society. Um, emotional state of teenage girls, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Section 230 passed even before social media was really a thing and has given them immense immunity to liability. And that's a problem. Like, it just was not handled well. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of, on the employment front, a couple of things. I, I know you've, uh, well, maybe ridiculed is too strong a word, uh, noted that Jeffrey Hinton predicted in 2016 or something that by 2021 radiologists would be in trouble. Well, uh, okay, he was Actually, maybe we a, little... have a shortage of radiologists. Not one radiologist. Well, although has there been was a huge, there was a huge study in Lancet, which came out major medical journal. It came out last month. A hundred thousand chest X-rays. These are real life cases. They followed up. What was the original diagnosis? What was the true diagnosis? And I think there were. Um, let's see. I may have the numbers here. There were 37 different kinds of maladies. And the AI outperformed doctors in 27. Doctors outperformed the AI in one, and the other 10 were a dead heat. So that's... I don't doubt that, but it's... or I mean, I might doubt it a little if I saw the study, but, but the issue has been in those studies in general that using AI as an aid to a doctor has worked fairly well. Sometimes doctors plus humans outperform humans alone or doctors alone. But that replacing an entire radiologist workflow as opposed to whatever task is in a particular or set of tasks is in a particular experiment has proven to be really, really difficult. 
Yeah. Um, the uh, another another thing. I mean, I don't know. Those numbers suggest to me that if I'm the patient, I, I'd say give me the AI. It's cheaper or will be in the long run. Um, and you uh, narrow the better. tasks enough that that would actually make sense. But you actually want to be considered as a whole human being. And for now, the radiologist is probably still better. Yeah, but even even when uh, people use AIs as tools, that has consequences for employment. Another example is there was a piece I sure. did in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. There's some company that does surveys of, I think, the same group of thousands and thousands of workers in a number of different com- countries every so often. And they, they asked them, and these are in like financial, tech, healthcare, like all kind of like all the white collar professions collectively just about. And they asked them, like, do you use generative AI at least uh, once a week? And in June, only in one category did more than 50 percent people say yes. By November, in all seven categories, more than 50 percent of the people said yes. And look, that's we all love tools. But in the end, if you increase productivity, unless you also see demand increase so that your output is going to increase, you know, you're going to lay off some workers. And I'm not I'm not against efficiency gains and I'm not against progress. I'm just saying that if this all hits too fast, uh, we're in trouble. And, and, and I and I want to suggest that stats like that, I, like for me, the bottom line is I think you'll always be able to point to things that it can't do well. And there are still quite a few. But but in a way, the bottom line is, is it good enough for practical purposes? It has been in my life. It's been useful for particular things. And I think we're starting to see signs, uh, first of all, in my profession in journalism, um, but also in other professions that it's good enough for practical purposes. And you're going to start seeing a lot of turbulence. And I guess I guess I worry that if uh, prominent people like you overwhelmingly emphasize the stuff it can't do, people won't focus on the challenges that are going to be posed by the things it can do, if that makes sense. I I think that um, as much as you may admire the vividness of my writing or whatever. I was just about to say that. Yes, I admire the vividness of your writing. As much as that may or may not be true. um, You know, I'm just one voice here. And overwhelmingly, the media presentation of this stuff is that it's the greatest thing since sliced eggs that everybody or sliced toast, I guess is the metaphor that everybody should be using it. Um, you know, the, the, the other side of this argument is, is not suffering, uh, from oxygen. So, um, everybody's in fact tried it. What's interesting in industry, I think is that every company in the world tried it a lot last year, but many of them have not really found a way to make it part of their production workflow that they use every day. So everybody has tried it as proof of concept. Every, you know, chief information officer gets an email from their CEO saying, what are we doing with AI? It's all the people did last year. But then they did all these experiments and the reliability issues are real for many domains. The cost of error can be serious in many domains. And so people are still struggling. In the domain of computer programming, everybody adopted immediately. But now some studies are coming out saying the quality of code is dropping and there might be um, long-term technical debt and so forth. So I don't think there's any question that people are trying to figure out what they can use this stuff for, no matter what I might say about the limitations or whatever. Like, I don't get that much airtime. Um, so people are trying it. Now we do have to find out empirically, as you're saying. I think we can agree on that. What does it work for? What does it does not work for? When can you trust it? When should you not trust it? And so forth. The thing that I would say that's getting missing is we actually need to look at some other approaches. And this is taking all the oxygen right now, all the funding, Every graduate student goes into this because that's where the money is uh, and so forth. And I've never seen as intellectually narrow a field as I see right now in AI. There is one approach, which is the transformer architecture, which was developed in 2017. And that is the only thing that like 95% of people are using 95% of the time. All the funding from the venture capitalists go there and so forth. My view is in the long term, it is not the answer to AI. That By 2030, we're going to look back and say, they really were all in on that one and they should have looked at other things sooner. Like that's how I think it's going to turn out. It may. I'm pretty impressed with what we've got so far. It's very useful uh, for me. Uh, let me ask you a, a final uh, question. I think you've got to, you've got to go pretty soon, but um, the, uh, um, 
on these gaps, like in common sense reasoning, like uh, you say, who is Tom Hanks's mother? And it gives you her name. And then you say, and who is the son of this woman? And you repeat the name of Tom Hanks's mother. It doesn't know. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of there are a lot that of called the things. reversal curse. If people want right. to look it up. So th there's a lot of that. And uh, again, I think it can have huge impact without solving all these problems. But if you imagine one thing I've wondered is like on the math thing, for example, I assume you can just kind of plug in a calculator module, so to speak, right? I, That's I, actually I, hard. One of my Substack essays is actually about that. So the problem is what you get is the output is typically a sentence. Mm -hmm. And if you feed that off to some other module, it is to figure out what to do with that sentence. And it's sort of similar to like, you know, kids learning about word problems and what math actually fits with the word problem. They're just not that good at it. They're not that reliable. I think mm -hmm. the Substack pieces with Ernie Davis in my Substack and <clears throat> has the word tools in the title. Um, it just, it doesn't work that well so far. Um, and I don't think it will. My joke about this is like the old joke about the perpetual motion machine. I have everything I need for this perpetual motion machine, except for one thing. And you ask me, what's the one thing you're missing? Um, it's the part that goes back and forth and back and forth. So all you need is to take generative AI and put this little module on it and you're all, you'll be all good. Well, what does the little module do? Well, it takes a sentence, parses it into a logical form, reasons over it. Well, that's what the whole pursuit of artificial intelligence has been for 70 years. Nobody knows actually how to build that little tool. That little tool is the yeah. whole ball game. I mean, I was wondering, I've heard you say, I, I think what you've said is, yeah, deep learning has its place. Again, deep learning is associated with the kind of neural network model that, that isn't your basic approach. You've said deep learning has its place, and maybe what you'll ultimately have is the more, the symbol manipulation approach kind of supplemented by deep learning. And I'm, I'm wondering if it might be the other way around or whether it's always even clear which is which and whether it matters. We need some bridge between those worlds. Like the symbolic world gives you things like you can say, don't draw, draw me a picture, but with no elephants, you actually should get no elephants like the symbolic structure tells you what that should be. We need to be able to bridge that with these amazing things that can draw where they can, you know, summarize text across huge domains and, and so forth, um, not completely reliably. We have to bridge those domains. Mm -hmm. But historically, the people in those two domains have hated each other. And it, there's all these things, money at stake and prizes and who their students are and, and so forth. And so things have just polarized in this terrible way. I mean, it's kind of like Democrats and Republicans in the, in the United States just can't really even talk to each other anymore mm -hmm. on most matters. And, and like a lot of people suffer. Like there's actually like, middle political ground that doesn't even get considered because these people can't bring it home to their voters and these people can't bring it home to their voters. There's some kind of similar dynamic here where any kind of middle ground to try to bring these things together mm -hmm. just gets shot down by both sides. Well, down the road, if I, if I can get somebody from uh, the tribe that's kind of opposite of yours, the uh, together, with, with, will you come on the show and we'll have peace in our time? I'm always happy to do that. Most of those people don't want to debate with me anymore, but you know, well, you get them to show up. I, I will never, I will never fear. And, and, um, you know, I would rather build positive bridges. If anybody wants okay. to do that, I'm here for it. Well, now that they've seen how civil you can be, uh, that maybe they'll, they will flock. Maybe they'll stand in line. I, I want to say one other thing we have in common just very quickly. We both, uh, uh sometimes nativist is the term we, we, you and I both think that there's quite a bit of stuff built into the human mind, right. human brain by natural selection, including stuff for processing language. There That's are people right. who think it may not that, be specific for processing language. It could be that the stuff that allows us to do language is part of our cognitive machinery in general, but there's at least a little bit that's special to the humans or else chimpanzees would talk. So I it, think, <laughs> I think there's stuff special to language. And what I would say is there are people who think, that the success of neural networks, and I know you don't think the success is that great, I do, but they interpret that as being a vindication of the kind of blank slate model. I think that's a misunderstanding. Maybe we can talk about it next time. Um, and I'll uh, give you one sentence on that and then, and then I'll go, which is I think that all the failures that we still see reflect the fact that there isn't some um, innate structure for representing the world. So maybe we'll pick up on that time the next time we talk. But in my view, the successes are kind of um, reflective of Kahneman's system one or something like that. Mm -hmm. The failures are because we still don't have the system two in there. And that might tie the symbolic stuff. So in a future conversation, we'll I have a different interpretation, but we'll keep people on the edge of their seats until next Sounds time. Good.
Thanks for All taking right. the time, Gary. This was fun. This was fun. Great to see you. All right.